Welcome to the Master Your Voice podcast. Today, we have Stephanie Gonzalez from Apropos Management joining us. She's going to tell us a lot about her career, her life, and hopefully her insights and thoughts about the music industry in general. So I'm very excited to share her expertise and her beautiful soul with my listeners on the Master Your Voice podcast. Welcome, Stephanie. Oh, thank you, Heidi, so much. I'm excited to be here with you. I admired you from the day I met you. Do you remember how we met? I do. We have daughters. I I beelined you. I went, ooh, I hear music teacher, (laughs) vocal coach. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. And look at us now. Now we're doing new things, and I'm really happy to be on your podcast. I can't wait to get to the nitty-gritty. It's wonderful to do new things and to learn, especially to learn from each other, not just um, new things, but also things that we've kept along the way. Yes, indeed. So um, I'm going to start with just what I love to start with, a little bit of biography. So Stephanie Gonzalez, tell us a little bit about where you're from. Well, I was born and raised in Monterey County, which is Steinbeck country. And uh, my family has a lot of musical background. My parents were true hippies, true music lovers. Not a day went by that we music didn't flood our house. We had music far more than television and any other form of entertainment. It was just music, music, music. My best cousin is a saxophone player, and he had his little high school band, and his bass player in the band was my age, and he was my first crush. And he became my boyfriend and he exposed me to tons of music. And together we made our way to Los Angeles to pursue music both with him in a, in a band, in a real rock band and me in any form I could get it. Who knew what I was going to be? I didn't know if I would fall into the music industry or if I would just get into videos or some form of musical based entertainment. But you so, knew you wanted to be involved in music in some way, shape, or form. As, as early as I can remember, I was just addicted to music. I loved it. And I went to concerts very young in life because my parents took me. So I was exposed at, a, at an early time in life. And that's all I thought about. That's all I cared about. I would collect, I would cut out magazines, like collect all the little music magazines in those days, which don't exist anymore, like heavy metal magazine and 16 and Tiger Beat and all those (laughs) classic magazines. And I would cut out the figures of all my favorite music stars. And I had this collage on my, on my uh, closet doors. I had posters on my ceiling. I was a huge John Bon Jovi fan. Oh, forget about it. So hair bands, you love all hair bands or just Bon Jovi? In that era, I was definitely rock and roll, for sure, nice. no doubt. I think my earliest memory was actually the client that I work for today, which is a very, very interesting kind of ironic story, is through my dad's vinyl. My stepdad had tons of vinyl records. So, well, that's how we listen to things. Eight tracks, too, actually, mm. in that era. If any, if any of the young I, fans say, I don't think anybody know is going to know what an eight track eight track is, but I do. I remember being in my dad's pickup truck with an eight track. Yes, yes. So, kids, look it up because it's an interesting evolution of music. Incredible. So, with, the, with the, my dad's vinyl collection, I was the only one who was allowed to touch it because I had such extreme respect for music. You know, I pick it out, you know, take it the vinyl carefully, no fingerprints, blah, blah, blah. 
clean it, make sure the needle drop properly, etc. So after homework every day, I would go sit on the floor next to the turntable and all the records would be spread out in front of me. And I always picked up George Benson. I just love George Benson. And I would put him on and gosh, his music is just to this day, even though I hear it every single day, I've seen his more George Benson concerts than anybody on the planet. <laughs> I never get sick of it. It's truly my favorite artist in the world. So I would, so my mother had taken note. My mom tells the story. I, I don't really recall it, but my mom tells the story that I'm about 11 years old and there I am on the floor sifting through records and I'm just staring at George Benson's album cover. She's like, why do you always play George Benson? You know, why are you, why do you, why are you staring? And whatever her question was. And my answer to her is, mom, I'm going to marry George Benson one day. Because I did. I had a huge crush on him. He was beautiful. So I well, didn't quite marry him, but you Ooh, sort of. Yeah. To the, you know, I told, you know, we told George this story many times. He blushes and he giggles. And I said, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm your work wife. Let's admit it. You know, I, I got to marry you, but I pursued him. I wanted this. I manifested George Benson in my life. That's so that's probably my earliest memory but I very quickly fell into rock and roll. My dad took me to a journey concert and that was it. That was it. I was on. And I, I went to you back where I lived. We used to have these concerts. We were close to San Francisco. So the big place that you would drive to for all the big concerts were the cow palace. And then every summer they had these festivals called days on the green. And so you saved your money for that because those days it would be, one headliner after another. So it'd be Van Halen, Scorpions, Journey, Greg Kinn Band, whoever was the, the cool bands of that era yeah. would be a whole day of them. And Bill Graham would put them on. It was Bill Graham Presents, who was, was the greatest promoter to walk planet Earth. He was my one of my first uh, mentors and, and looked up to him and followed his career. And that's where I spent my summers were days on the green. I bought every single ticket, come home with the concert t-shirt and I just loved it. And I knew I had to do this somehow. I didn't know how, but But I knew I had to do it. What I find fascinating about this is you have not yet discussed whether you played an instrument or you sang. No, neither. No, you were just an incredibly impassioned consumer. Consumer. And business-minded. Because at the same time, I have this technical mind. I'm really good with numbers. I I thought I wanted to move to New York and work on Wall Street. I was certain I was going to get into the investor world and I was going to have a penthouse and I was going to wear high heels and suits and power suits every day. And I was going to live this glamorous New York City life. But I loved music so much. I discovered how to do exactly that, but with music which is the intersection of all your talents and your passions. Exactly. So I work, I read contracts. I'm, you know, I negotiate deals. I love to negotiate. I just bought a new car over the weekend. It was so fun, you know, (laughs) because I walk in stealth. These guys have no idea the single woman, older woman, whatever I am in their eyes come waltzing in. And before you know it, I have the exact deal I wanted as I walk out. <laughs> so you, you so exercise I, skills in your personal life. Oh, too. yes, indeed. I love so it. With, so with, during that era is really, 
just, I, I consumed so much music. It was just ridiculous. I just owned tons of it. I loved it. And I went to many, many concerts. So when Cordell and I, who was my boyfriend, came to, he came to LA first. I followed a few years later. And that's when I put all of this into motion. Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to go off topic sort of for a second. Okay. Because it's going to come back around. Okay. Your favorite style of music. So back then it was rock and roll, but I feel like you're not necessarily always no. in rock and roll. You've moved no, all around. It's, it's I'm, I'm genre nonspecific. Yeah. You know, yesterday, I don't know why Journey's coming up in my world. Oh, I know why, because they just dropped a new single with the, you know, the current band. It's good. It, I, I was like, oh, this isn't Journey. So I had to go back and listen to every single record. So I've been singing Journey for the last two days. So, but no, I'm not genre specific. And you're, you're right, because I followed a lot of R&B. I loved Earth, Wind & Fire. And this is coming from my roots. And my family, my cousin, who's a saxophone player, Earth, Wind & Fire, um, and uh, George Benson, of course. And uh, I was into Cameo and... You name all the R&B bands because I'm very R&B influenced. Maxwell is one of my favorite artists, you know, so I, I can't say I all I can. I only answer that question when people ask it of me is what I like today, yeah. because it's going to change tomorrow That's or next week. I'd say I, I kind of I get heavy, heavy, heavy into artists for about a week or two at a time. And then I, you know, get heavy, heavy into something else because there's so I'm I'm so in tune with what's available and what's out there. I know what all the modern music is and I know what all the classics are. So yeah. I, I just kind of go with whatever is right in front of me. You know, I follow, uh, you know, uh, when they, um, Friday, new music Friday, I follow that. So that way I'm, a, I know what's coming out, whether I like it or not. Yeah. Cause for the most part, I, I generally, I like everything. There's not anything that, that offends me. Well, and I feel like too, that kind of mirrors your professional life. So I was reading a little bit about some of your clients and some of the people you've worked with, and it's kind of jaw dropping the, the variety of artists and genres that you've, that you've managed and worked with. So you have to tell us just because to me, it was the most fun, fun fact about Stephanie, the first thing you got involved with in terms of music management. Okay. So at this time in my life, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm here for about three in months. In the 90s, right? The early yes, 90s. This is the 90s, the early 90s. Yes. And I am going to school, studying interior design. I just got accepted into FITM, but I had a little accounting job for a used car dealership and a subwoofer company. <laughs> I was doing a little accounting, side accounting for both. And the gentleman at the, at the subwoofer company just, we would talk for hours about music. So one of his clients was this man named Norman Winter. And unbeknownst to me at the time, Norman Winter turns out to be one of the most infamous publicists of the early, like the 70s and the 80s. He was huge. He was with, you know, people like CBS when Walter... Askinoff and all those really big, like the mafia players, the pay for play players, all those big executives were influential. And he was the go-to publicist. And he actually brought Elton John from Europe to the United States. He was the publicist who introduced wow. that wonderful artist to us today. In mm -hmm. fact, he had to like, well, anyways, I'm going ahead of myself. So this gentleman that I worked for, 
told me that he was looking for an executive assistant and he said, you should get into this. It'd be a really good job. And it's in Hollywood. It's in the Motown building. It's really cool. And so I went in for the interview and I got the job and I was like, you know, I should really take this. This is really cool. So I accept the job. I start working for Norman Winter and one of their clients is this band called NWA. Yeah. And um, I'm I was giggling like, just because I'm having images they. of like high school and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is the straight out of Compton record. Yeah. Then first one. So I didn't know who they were. I knew of them. I knew all everything leading up because there was a big, you know, Norman had started to it's like a musical revolution. You were like part yeah. of a musical revolution. I was there. In fact, the movie that they've had that they put out is pretty on the spot. I can tell you where it's not, you know, like they really make Dre the sympathetic character. Oh no, you know, no, 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 no. So obviously Dre had a sign off on the movie. Yeah. So, because that is not the case, not the case. And I was there for that. So I'm this little cute, I fell off the lettuce truck, remember? I'm from Salinas Valley. So yeah. I'm just this super sweet, just innocent, in the adorable. <laughs> like this so they come in the office the first time and I'm like all ready for them all professional like can I get you any water and I'm like hello Dr. Dre and he's looking <laughs> at me and I'm like hi easy and he easy was so sweet he's like you know oh, very sweet the rest of them ignored me ignored me and I didn't really ever get to know Ice Cube because he wasn't in the business side of it as much so it was mainly Dre Yella and and easy and easy was just great I ended up becoming friends with his, the woman, I mean, they were never married, but he was, she had all his children, mm-hmm. some of them, you know how that is. And she actually worked next door at um, the management company who manages Howard Stern and people who to this day still manages Howard Stern. I forget, Howard, I forget the name of the company. It's a really big management company, but she worked for him. So we would meet in the hallway, would take little breaks together all alone and just talk. So I got to be really kind of good friends with her and I respected her and liked her a lot. Her and Easy were really good people, you know, considering, you know, what they had come out of, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So that first year of my life was really chaotic, really crazy. A lot of award shows, tons of press. I was thrust into an industry that I had no idea what to do, but learned. I chose to take in every single person's role. I wanted to know what everyone did and how they did it and, and what came out of what they did. And yeah. so I could learn, you know, cause there were no schools. There was no UCLA music business 101. You know, there was nothing that taught you how to enter the in- industry. It was true music lovers in that era. And I wonder if there even still are programs that could do what you got. I don't I think teach so. what you got. No, but there are programs now. And I think it is teachable. I mean, they're being taught by people like me who can give their information. There's really wonderful, astute people from my era, though, that early era, that 80s, 90s era is so important because that's when we built music from nothing. All we had were, you know, radio publicity now you know we didn't have spotify we didn't have a means to really market music so it's such a when you think about the evolution of the music industry in general i talk to talk about this all the time with people how different that landscape is today than it was five years ago than it was 20 years ago 30 years ago it's 
incredible the possibilities for an independent artist right now in terms of getting themselves started. It's also crazy because there's so much out there now. Yeah, no, and there is, there's, it's, it's flooded actually, which is not such a good thing. It's great because it allows everybody the freedom, like the capacity to actually get their music heard and, and such, but it also floods it. And maybe we're missing the next John Lennon somewhere because that John Lennon, who's so spectacular, can't be seen just by wrong place, wrong time. And people aren't signing, you know, artists the same way they did before. Yeah, it's just a, it's a very, very different, very different world. So I'm going to ask you a little bit specifically, like, how did you land? So you started, you had some PR success, uh, living in the, in PR. And then how did you end up transitioning over to management? Well, interestingly enough, it it was through my first gig there at Norman Winter and Associates, because there were other publicists who looked kindly upon me and knew I was not really happy working for Norman. He was older at that time. He had some business practices that I didn't appreciate. And it was difficult working with NWA. They were, you know, Dr. Trey was very hard to work for. And he did some things publicly and privately. And and it's, it's been reported, you know, all of these things that, that scared me really, you know, because I didn't want, you know, I have to be happy too. I have to feel safe in my place. And the other, you know, there were other artists. We had Janet Jackson, we had Tony, Tony, Tony. There's a lot of R&B artists. I really enjoyed that part of it. Alternative music was coming out in those days. So it was really fun as well, like learning about that kind of, you know, low brow kind of not yet explored music genre. So it was great, but it just, I wasn't very happy. I was, I didn't like what I was seeing out there culturally. So my friend who was a publicist there had a friend who he he knew was looking for, and I think they needed a front office person at that point. So I thought it was going to be a huge step down. So I wasn't interested at first, Mm -hmm. but he said, no, it's for Motley Crue, you know, management, you should just go check it out. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, Motley Crue can't afford me. Like I'm like some high paid executive or something. <laughs> so I reluctantly go take this meeting. It's it's a it's an after work meeting at a bar, which I thought was kind of interesting. And Lay Express on, on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, if you remember it, it was a very hip place to go in those days. <laughs> so I go and meet this woman named Julie Foley at the time. And we begin this interview and by midnight because of course we're still there keeping it open having cocktails she becomes my best friend to this very day wow still in my life and we just had this wonderful connection she was so much fun once i learned what the job entailed and who the people involved were i there was no way i would say no no matter what they paid me and they ended up paying me more than i made as an executive assistant because okay. it was they were just in the money in those days. It was Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood era. Oh. Um, this manager, Doug Thaler, who is the best, one of my best friends in the whole world. He groomed me and made me understand the in, uh, industry. He, he always says to this day that I was the best artist he ever managed <laughs> because I was an artist in a different way. And I took the job and it was, it was just the front office, but I was being, she was, she wanted to have somebody there to take over her position 
as she was falling in love at the time with the bassist for Megadeth and would soon marry him and leave the industry. Mm. So I ended up taking her job as a co-manager. So I became Doug's left hand or right hand, right? And then also Motley Crue's day-to-day manager, Winger's day-to-day manager, Masters of Reality's day-to-day manager, a a POL's manager, my first signing, um, which never took off. Uh, who else did we have at that era? We had one other band, I forget. But it was it was just a glorious era of my life, and I loved it. And it was seven years, actually, seven years in two offices. We had to make one office change because at that time we were in Sunset Boulevard in the City National Bank building, and Geffen was across the street, and Atlantic was on top of us. In fact, there's a funny story in one of our in our conference room started leaking water all of a sudden. And we didn't know why. It was Amit Erkin's shower. <laughs> the president of the company's shower, I guess, oh, office shower was leaking into our office. So it was really fun because anywhere you went, you know, that uh, you would go to work that day. And anywhere you went, there was some cool musician or artist or executive or, you know, it's just we You're were just all in the same to everyone place. in that same in that little fishbowl. We were all there, the, all the yeah. all the cool. And so, you know, I'd look out my window and I and I'd all, I was always staring at Geffen because that's where the action was in those days. You know, they had Guns <laughs> and Roses and they had, you know, just great bands all over the place. And you'd see everyone coming in and out of there. And, and, and it was fun. You know, everyone would stop by the offices and say hi. And because we were Motley Crue, we were Motley Crue's manager. So we mattered in the business. So you have a multi-decade career in management. Oh yeah. Any I, other any other bands or any other groups you want to highlight really quickly before I dig into asking you the the meaty yeah. questions? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's interesting cuz because from rock and roll, I went into adult contemporary jazz, which is a very <laughs> like good segue. I you know, while the crew ended, you know, the manager parted ways and and I just I was on pursuit of George Benson and I was cuz I asked myself what do you want to do next? And I was like, George Benson or Stone Temple Pilots? See how diverse I am? Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. going to be more different. I got interviews with both, both bands. I thought I had the Stone Temple Pilots band until the manager who was going to hire me, presumably, asked me to meet him at the airport and dump, put me into a Cessna and, and said, we're going to go fly to San Diego for dinner and talk. And I said, this isn't an interview, is it? He goes, no, it's a date. I was like, well, I didn't get that job. So, so I was like, I can't take that. So I met with George Benson's manager and, and that's a whole long story in itself. It took three months before I would end up working with George Benson. And it wasn't for that management company. Cause I ended up taking a, a job with Dennis Turner at Turner management group. And I was Kenny G, Brenda Russell and Peter Cox's manager. Mm. And we had Macy Gray in those days as well. Oh, wow. So Yeah. So it was a really wonderful time in my life. Wonderful. And um, there's a big story about how we acquired George Benson, but that might be a podcast. A George Benson podcast would be in and of its own. It's such a fascinating series of events throughout that whole, because I've been with him for 25 years. Yeah. So from the management. Uh, Stephanie and George. Yeah, that's it. You know, to the end, 
That might be your book, Stephanie. That might be your book. Ooh, that would be so cute. Yeah, maybe I could tell his story. So anyhow, so those those are probably the biggest artists I could think of that I worked with um, independently in my own company. I've had the pleasure of working with Mindy Abair when she pursued her blues rock uh, career. She's usually a smooth jazz artist, but she wanted to try her hand at blues rock, which she did really well with. But she just she had to go back to smooth jazz just for the sake that at this time in her life, I think she needed to ensure her career was solid. Mm. Um, I've worked with Javier Colon, who was the season one winner of The Voice. That was a true, true pleasure. And I'm currently still with George, and I have a fantastic artist named Quinn Sullivan, who is just phenomenal. And he's he's 22 years old. He's a guitar phenom and a prodigy of buddy guys and just terrific and a a singer-songwriter and he's so cute the girls love him (laughs) so he's a he's a rising star I'm really concentrating on him right now yeah so you're you've got your hands full and you've had your hands full for a number of years yes and I wouldn't want it your your own management company right you have your own I do I started it in 2007 and George was my one and only client and I was scared and I never thought I could do it. But my former boss, Dennis Turner, my former partner, I should say, because we co-managed together. He was always gracious to make sure I was the co-manager. Talk about respect for women and, you know, holding women up. He, he was one that did that. And he urged me to get out on my own and take George. And I did it yeah. and it's worked. Yeah. That's amazing. And he's a build it and they will come artist. You know, I get a lot of requests to manage because I managed George Benson successfully and people want that. Yeah. That's amazing. It's amazing. So I'm going to ask you a really dumb question. Yay. I love that. <laughs> because for so many people, I'm sure who are listening to my podcast, tuning in and, and talking about music industry and your, your experience in music industry, but also just there's a lot of confusion about what people do and what different roles are. So my dumb question 101 is going to be, what do managers do? Managers are the, the the definition of a manager is the hardest to give in any role within the music industry because it's so diverse. My day is never the same day twice. That's what I love about it because I'm, I'm one of those creatures of change. I don't like things to be the same. Mm-hmm. I like diversity. I like change. I mix it up. I change my towels all the time from personal <laughs> to music to everything. I want it all. I want a little bit of it all. So in saying that, I'm an example. Right now, I have a situation to where, you know, there's a, 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 a we had to cancel some dates in May. So I'm in the process of rescheduling tour dates and looking at calendars and working with agents and buyers on how we could do this that works well for the venues and the buyers but also for the fans Mm -hmm. so that's on this week's agenda I have calls with I'm I'm about to create a new record deal for Mr. Benson Uh, he's going to go home as we call it his his big successes have been with Warner Brothers and Rhino Records we're going to close out his last record contract, we believe, will be with Rhino and Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. So we're, I'm in the middle of putting that together. I also, as a manager, you're, you liaise with all the other entities. And each artist has a different 
level of, you know, how many, how, what their team is made up with. So a new band has a smaller team. You know, you have your label, you might have your agent, and you might have your business manager. But when you get to each level brings in more people. You mm-hmm. have more people that are there to be on your team and help keep that career at the level that it has to be because it's not just one thing. So at the, so with my liaisons typically are strongest with the agents because I'm very well trained and equipped to manage international tours. I can take a, an artist anywhere with an agent and book it properly and create a career, God willing, you know, if we can, you know, make it fall, the pieces fall into place, of course. So the agent is number one priority liaison. Um, I keep the band notified and on track. You have a tour manager, hopefully. You uh, work a lot with the tour manager to ensure that all the touring and the band and all the information out there. And when you book a tour, it's more than just going somewhere. There's carnet, there's backline, there's equipment that you have to think about. There's set lists, there's per diems there's how are you going to route the tour there's so much to it but that's where a good tour manager works well with the manager the manager delivers the dates the tour manager kind of puts it together and together we bring it to the artist and the artist signs off so there's that there's the label there's so many entities that the manager has to know everything about so you're like the point person that all these other these other entities feed into yes yes everything goes through me and of course, the artist, you know, you you have to approve everything with your artist or, or sell it to them or however you want to call it. For yeah. me, I feel I like to call my relationship with the artist that I manage a partnership because I don't feel that I should have carte blanche decision making over their lives. Mm-hmm. I'm very I'm not for that. I think there's a lot of managers out there that just decide how their their um, client's career is going to go. And, and sometimes that works, but I think that's just disrespectful. I think that they have their own lives and desires and, and input. So I, I do it in liaison with my artists. Yeah. So then how do you know, how does a young performer know? Like, so you said you have this, this new performer, Quinn, mm-hmm. he's 22. Mm-hmm. How did he know he needed a manager or did you find him? His label told him he needed one. Because he was, even they, you know, he started out, he was pretty much being self managed, but he was discovered when he was seven or eight years old by Ellen DeGeneres. Wow. She found and put him on the show, and he's this cute little chubby cheek little boy just shredding on the guitar. So I think at that point, I don't know if Buddy heard of him from Ellen or if because of that exposure you know, his dad would take him to all these shows and stuff. And he got up there on stage with Buddy Guy one time and Buddy was like, holy cats. And there's this whole story out there. In fact, there was a documentary that was put out, but it's this—it's a, it's a well-known story in the music industry in the blues world where Buddy Guy now holds the torch and he has to pass the torch because he's almost 90 years old, mm. you know? And it started with Muddy Waters and those that era of genius yeah. who patched the torch down to each other and it got to Buddy Guy. So Buddy was look is looking for the torch. And yeah. so that was Quinn. And Quinn was gonna be the person. And so he had basically took him under his wing, took him out on the road with him, and he would perform. He'd either open up or he'd jump on stage with him. But basically he was a touring musician as a very young kid. 
Mm-hmm. He would, you know, pull them out of school and they'd go on the road and they'd do their thing and et cetera. So the dad was just on the road with him and the Betty's tour manager or Betty's manager was semi-managing Quinn. But when Quinn got old enough to get his own recording contract and, and start really making his own decisions, like when he was 17, 18, it became clear that perhaps he needed more an individual manager for him instead of just kind of, you know, hitching his wagon up to, to Buddy Guy. He needed to become more independent. So through that choice, he made his first record, still kind of under the Buddy wing, but the label that signed him told him that he needed to branch out and grow his business. And, and the, actually I was very proud of this. The, the label owner whom I have a relationship with, but still thought of me and he had been grooming me to meet this guy the whole time too. He was, he was like, yeah, this really great artist. I have to tell you about one day. I'm not going to tell you anything now, but I can't wait to tell you about blah, blah, blah. Keep it around. Yeah. So I was like, whatever, you know, he's just like, he knows I love music. Okay. Yay. And I, you know, George, everyone wants wants to open for George. So that was always my assumption. Then he called me for a lunch in December of that year. It was before pandemic. So I guess 2019 and asked me and, you know, you know, gave me this music and said, this is the artist I've been baiting you with and you you should check it out. And, you know, maybe you want to manage it. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm really flattered. So mm-hmm. I listened to the music. I was like, oh, yes, I do. I mean, he's so good. And he made a wonderful record with the, with Oliver Lieber, whom father, Lieber and Stoller, Jerry oh, Lieber, wow. who's a former associate of mine, too, because, you know, on Broadway, George recorded it. I used to go to Lieber Stoller offices all yeah. the time with George. Those were the greatest guys. Those were some of the highlights of my career, hanging out with those three in one room. You know, how, how lucky am I? You are lucky. Uh, gosh, I mean, the experiences are outstanding. So with in this particular situation, you know, actually, we had a Zoom meeting, uh, myself, Quinn, and his father, Terry, and fell in love and decided to take on this project. So... That's, you know, kind of like where we're at. And I think it's been good for him to have management because I think when he was, you know, you get what you, each manager kind of provides a different kind of service. I don't know how other managers manage. I know how Mm -hmm. I manage and I know how I was taught. And I like, I think I was taught and grew and formed my own management style better than a lot of managers. There's not a lot of managers I respect, you know, because I don't believe in big box management. I don't want 10 clients. I don't want 360 management where I'm also, you know, trying to incorporate their touring and and everything just under one roof. I don't, I don't like that either. I think everything needs to be separate because I think artists get a lot of ripoff going on these days and, and I don't like cross-pollination. I think it's just bad ethics. I mean, I can't say it's like that everywhere, but I see it more and more. So my my style of management is very boutique. I like to have two or three clients most to really concentrate on. And if I ever got to a point to where I felt overwhelmed, I would just, you know, I'd, I'd hire then. But nothing has brought me to that because I know it so well. And also Mr. Benson's a well-oiled machine. I have a lot of support through the label, through my tour manager, through my business manager, 
through the agent. So I have a really strong team. If I have to delegate something, I can safely. Whereas, you know, Quinn, I need to be all in it. I just have to, you know, I'm, I'm helping him build, you know, and grow. And then once his team is established, I move on and, and, and I kind of do it that way. Mm-hmm. So how do you, then is that how you find your new, your new clients or the new, the new performers you work with? Usually referral. I get referrals. Yeah. I usually refer. I don't pursue as I used to back in the, my, the last artist I pursued like a crazy person was indeed George. (laughs) (laughs) And once I got that, I was like, Oh geez, I, you know, check that box. (laughs) So you wait to see, you wait to see if they get referred to you usually by a label or by Well, Javier Colon was through a business manager. Um, Mindy was actually through Mindy. Mindy came to me. Um, Quinn was through a label owner. I'm trying to think of the most recent ones and how they came about. Uh, George was just mine. Uh, Billy Myers was, I forget what Billy was. I think, I think, oh, Billy was a business manager. I worked with her many, many years ago, but uh, yeah, it's, it's always referral from some sort of entity that you've worked with that know, knows your game. You know what I mean? It's, it's people, it's, it's definitely because people respect you and how you do things. That's in my case. Uh, however, I may, there's somebody that I'm kind of looking at, you know, I may pursue things, you know, I may pursue Lola, who knows? You know, I've always kept little Lola in the back of my mind because, you know, there's times and this would be a good time because I just ended an agreement with an artist that you, sometimes you just take on projects too. Yeah. Like I like projects a lot. So you're not, you know, forever have to manage them for the rest of their lives. Like with George, it's, you know, we're going to the end of the line, Yeah, but there's certain things, certain artists that I just take on a project. Okay, I'll work this record with you and then see how it goes. And and if it's not productive or lucrative enough or whatever, then either party has the the the, the ability to step out. So, so now I'm one shy. It's tricky. It's a little bit tricky when you think about um, performers and singers, because obviously my audience is pretty much performers and singers. Right. How how they come to understand how all of this world works. And it's very easy, I think, for them to get taken advantage of. Oh, yes. I think there are a lot of them are, if you're smart, you're worried about it. Mm-hmm. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask if there are any red flags. So assuming you have a young performer who's, who's excited about jumping in the industry, wants to give everything. And I've had uh, several students in the last few months that are in this position where they've got these deals that they're work talking to people about and yeah. And sc- producers, quotes. right. It's yeah, producers, producer. Somebody wants to buy their music or do something. And then, yeah. So the, my biggest question I suppose is red flags. Yeah. Well, big red flag for me would be a producer that says, Oh, I'll put up all the money. And you know, they put up all the money. Right. And you know, write with you maybe, or get writers. What what these days, what producers mainly are looking for are for really talented artists that lend their, what I believe is, is a, should be considered writing, whether or not you physically write, mm-hmm. their, their tool, their code, their voice. That is the the most the way their style of singing a song what what whatever it may be but they what they want to do is that they want to own the master which means they own the recording yeah they, they want to write the record so they own 100 percent of the writing and publishing and 
the artist has nothing. So basically because Spotify is its own entity and it, while it doesn't pay a lot, but you know, somebody who has over a million you know, uh, uh, streams yeah. is getting paid. You yeah. know, it's, they pay you monthly, but there's also an entity called sound exchange and that's when it crosses over to anything digital like Pandora, Sirius XM pays so good. If yeah. you get, if you get a song played on Sirius XM, I mean, you could almost make a living, you know, just on off that if they continue to play you because that, that format, it's not like terrestrial radio where you can only, you know, they only play you two or three times, maybe a week. Well, you know, at Sirius XM will play you 26 times in a week because yeah. you know, they don't have any rules or obligation and they don't report to BDS or anything. So that's, that's a big one is that when they want to pretty much own, you think you're, you're getting products and stuff. Oh, I'll pay for it or whatever. I would never give away my, my publishing. Never. Yeah. That's so watch out, writer, watch out for what you're publishing. Somebody wanting the publishing, right? Yeah. And if you're not a writer and you're just going and what you get in exchange is, you know, maybe you're being introduced to a label or something or, or you have a band or an agent. I mean, how are you going to earn your income touring? You're going to yeah. earn your income touring or streaming, or, uh, or you know, playing, uh, you know, out, you know, well, we said touring, streaming, and then, of course, any kind of publishing. So these days, if you're going to start out that way, you got to be a writer, you have to be a, a composer, you have to have some interest in, in writing. And developing the intellectual property side of it. For sure. Not just the performing. Exactly. Although the performance is going to pay you more than anything. Yeah. But if you're not, if you don't have a band or you're just a soloist that need, it, there's a lot that goes into becoming a touring artist or performing artist. It's a lot. That's a whole another thing. Yeah. So that's, that's what I would say is that you got to watch those producers. Producer deals are scary. <laughs> There's also 360 deals out there that these, that some small companies like management companies will go, yeah, I'll do this for you. And, and then they, they I'll book you. I'll do this. So they perform all the duties, right? Mm-hmm. But they, they, that's why they call it 360 because it's a whole circle. They own you. So yeah. they commission your, so they're, they're basically double dipping. They're, they're booking your tours. They're, however they're working your material live etc so you owe everything to them and then you have no you have no income distribution i think the smartest thing to do is to have a manager because a manager is the person who's going to figure it all out for you if they're legit you know that's the other thing and how do you know because i know the other thing i've heard too is the pay to play. Like if you, if you join my management company, you pay me so I can manage you. Never run. That is not a manager. I worked during pandemic made $9,000 for the entire year for Quinn because we couldn't tour. Yeah. So I was just making small, you know, commission checks off of his publishing and his sound exchange that there was nothing else. And any little kind of video, you know, the, the, the Zoom gigs weren't paying much. Everyone just wanted to just do something. So I committed regardless. It was my investment. I don't make anything unless he makes money. Never pay anyone anything. Just like it's that same thing like with photos. Remember like modeling agencies? Oh, yes. And you're modeling yes. You know, everybody. You get your pictures with us. We'll make you a famous model. Yeah. Yes. Just you have to pay a thousand dollars. You know, no, you don't pay anybody anything. Ever for their services, unless you're making money, you only pay your commission. 
Yeah. Well, Stephanie, that's, I think, the most gold possible, you know, in terms of, of advice for young performers, because I do think they get sucked into Ponzi schemes or little opportunities for people to take their intellectual property and take advantage of them because you're really talented people that just don't understand how the industry works at all. It's terrible because I look at each, you know, I see it in the industry with young artists that come to me for advice. I get, I do give a lot of advice for free. It's my way of giving back, you know, because I don't, I've I've had such a glorious career and I care so much about the artists. The creators are, are the last ones. They're the ones who get, messed up, messed over by a lot of these entities, like Spotify pays the creators less than anyone, you know, that's involved. I mean, the master owner always does better than the creators. And I I just don't understand that. So anyhow, I I see a lot of it and I see a lot, you know, and I, I, I see these deals where these really great artists sign a record deal and there are three record deals, right? And I'm like, you're 20 years old. You're not going to be done with this record until you're 30. So your entire decade of your life is this is what your life is going to look like. These are the percent, unless you just hit one out of the park and you have a huge hit to where you have the power of renegotiation, you're going to either have to pay to get out of it, get another label who will pay an override to the label to get you out or extract you somehow, or you're stuck with it because there's, it's terrible, these deals that they give them. And you have to have a really good, you have to have somebody who understands how to read the legalese, the the definitions. And that's where I, as a manager, exceed at. I can't say it's the same for a lot of them, but if, if the management company is legit, they have a little background, they do have some artists that you can look up, you know, Google everything, research before you get involved with anyone. These days you can, and you can find out a lot about a person and you can ask around because if you're slightly suspicious, if it's not looking right, it, you know, it's, it probably isn't trust right. your instinct. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's so tricky for young artists because they just want to get in. I know. They want to get in. Get in. in. Can you imagine having a three record deal, which most of them try to lock you in for never sign anything that long because think about record deals or cycles is like three years minimum. Yeah. You got to think to make the record, to, produce, to, you know, get it out, to yeah. give it enough life to tour, you know, it's years. So do the math. Do you want to be 30 years old, still struggling with a crappy, you know, if your label's not giving it what you would were hoping for. So the less you give to somebody, the better too. That's that I think is excellent and unexpected advice. I think to think about the long-term game versus just the short-term. Yes. And I don't think they see out. To, I mean, it's when you're a young person. I think this I is know. not just in music. Yeah. <laughs> well, see no. the long-term commitment and, that you're making, and, whether it's going to college or getting a record deal. You, you are so right, Heidi. And, it, and it's our duty as as you know elders and wise sages remind them that it's their lives are going to go very fast i i never believed it now until i saw it which i saw right away stephanie very fast or very slow depending (laughs) on the commitments you make right yeah exactly contract that that sixth year might feel like death oh my goodness (laughs) it will never end you don't see the end of the tunnel yeah, I have a little artist that I'm trying to help just as a friend who's in that. And it's heartbreaking, really mm-hmm. heartbreaking, super talented. And it's soul crushing because we're, we, we are encouraging, we want to encourage people to follow their passions and make music. And then when the world of business and the music of the business of music gets in the way of 
what they have to say and their soul and their passion and it can kill it. It can crush their spirit and crush, crush all their creativity and really put a damper on their ability to actually make something worthwhile because the industry and the business itself can wash them up. Yeah, no, it's, it's the cynicism that comes out of that too. When you're just so tired, you know, of the, and used. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's heartbreaking for me. And that's the kind of like, the side of me that sniffs that out. And I just give, I even give, un, yeah, I'll give advice unsolicited. You know, if I notice something funky happening with somebody that, you know, I'll just tell them you are in trouble and you better, and this is what you need to do. I'll just say it because I'd rather it. help a person. I don't need anything. You know what I mean? I just don't. I mean, when I commit to, you know, cause I want to have artists that are good for me too. I just can't take on everything. If it's in bad shape, I don't want it, you know? So I'll just help it. I'll help that person out of the, you know, just because I want them to be okay. Well, I think too, that comes back at you. You know, it's kind of a karmic event. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, give, you have, give good to others. Like, yeah. You don't have to always expect something in return. It'll come back. And also your reputation will will come before you. You know, people will know, well, that person has integrity. And, you know, she's there all the time making good decisions, helping people out genuinely out of the kindness of her heart, not just because she's expecting a quid pro quo. Yeah. No, and that's me. 100. I'm so, I love my job so much, Heidi, every day of my life. There's never been a moment where I've never, I've ever wanted to do anything else. And, you know, sometimes I get worried, like, am I aging out? You know, and you think that way because music is a young person's game, but they can't lose us. You know, managers... I think we have forever jobs because you only get better with wisdom, your, it's yeah. your experiences, because there's no school of management. There's nothing. You have to be in it to know. And you have to and, fall on your face a lot, too. And it changes so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, we've had that kind of alluded to it before. It's, there's no way that a school curriculum could keep up with the school of management and music right. management. In music industry, I still don't understand how there are music industry majors that could remotely stay relevant given the timeline it takes to even adopt a course at a university. Like how do they stay up with all of this? Because it changes monthly. Yeah. That's a really good question. It'd be interesting to know. Like I'd have a couple of people that I know one works for UCLA, but UCLA used to have a program that was not, you could just take, it was under the UCLA name, but it wasn't, you had, you know, you could just go and sign a four year degree. Like call it like, Yeah. yeah, like college, uh, adult school, so to speak. But now I think like USC has an actual program. Yeah, I know that. Um, remember Patrice Russian? You mm. send me, forget me not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember yeah, her? Yeah. She's, yeah, so yeah. Cute. And she's still relevant. She plays keyboards for us every once in a while. Georgia will record with her and do things with her. But she's, she's very relevant. But she is a, a, a professor at USC. In fact, my yeah. current, for Georgia's band, my current percussionist, Liliana Delos Royas, Reyes, I'd like to give her props because she's very young. She's she started in her twenties with George. She's been with us for eight years, and now she's just getting she's huge. But she she went to school at USC. But she told me she didn't go in for the business. She went to the music school, but she did take some of the business courses. And she said they just didn't make sense to her. She doesn't have a whether or not they didn't work taught properly or maybe which is not to say that they they aren't wonderful. It's just a question I I posit because I just think in terms of the breakneck speed, which the industry changes. Yeah, Yeah, it just is. It's interesting to me. I think the best thing is to have that to have somebody there that understands the industry that 
that has a commitment to staying relevant and current with the things that are happening mm-hmm. um, and to have someone that can guide you with that, you know, the depth and breadth of knowledge and also connections. Like there's a big deal in terms of being able to have someone who can network and know a bunch of people who can not just open doors, but call someone who, you know, you know, you have this issue. Well, they have to know who to call. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really beneficial thing, all of it. Well, I want to say a big, a big thank you, Stephanie. I'm going to wrap up in just a second. And, but first, of course, I want to say um, any current projects or anything you want to tell everybody about they should be looking for? Well, um, I think everybody should go listen to Quinn Sullivan and, and follow him on Facebook, follow him on all of his How do we find him? Is it just Quinn? It's Quinn Q. Well, it's the Quinn Sullivan, I believe on Facebook. But you could just Google him, Quinn Sullivan, guitar player. He'll come right up. And he has all his socials. He's so good. I just want everybody to hear him. So Quinn Sullivan. Quinn Sullivan. Sullivan. And hopefully you'll share a little bit of him so we can we can play a little bit. So you say that again? Will you will you be able to share a little bit of Quinn? So we can With, play a little bit? Or? So right now? No, no. I'll just send it to me. I'll pop it into the podcast. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. You know, that's what I'll do. I'll just send you all the links and everything, and you can include them in your podcast in the notes or something. Yeah. He's so sensational. He's so beautiful. I just love his videos. Oh, my. His videos have so many streams because or views because his they're just dynamic. They're really good. And so I think Quinn needs the big... Uh, uh, George Benson's <laughs> classic. He is smooth as ever. You know, he coined the term smooth jazz. That came from him. <laughs> and he will be playing the Hollywood Bowl this year, August 28th, Bye. if anybody wants a great show. But we're also opening, um, well, we're helping a, a venue that, that was due to open pre-pandemic, but pandemic never allowed it to. So this is its first season. There's a new shell in, um, in San Diego like a, a mini Hollywood Bowl, a shell kind of outdoor theater. And George is playing, he's the, he's, he's the main act, but he's playing with the Commodores and oh. War. So it's going to be one of those funky, RB yeah. grooving. So look for that one too, because San Diego could use some help over there. I say everybody <laughs> buy music, buy it. Buy, buy these music. players. Yeah, pay for your Spotify, no freebies. If you love music, consume it fairly so the so the creators get paid sounds amazing stephanie do you mind sharing any way that people could reach out to you is that okay yeah how how would they find stephanie (sighs) well apropos management yeah that well first case you have to be able to spell really good i had this brilliant you know name for my company apropos management it's perfect it's i'm apropos to the music industry until i learned nobody knows how to spell it including myself so it's basically <laughs> it's an odd s at the end <laughs> yeah it's my name stephanie at apropos management a p is in paul r o p is in paul o s management all spelled out dot com have at it Wonderful. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me. I think this is going to be so beneficial for my listeners. And it's just super fun for me to hear a little bit more about your career, about what you do. I've always admired you and I've heard amazing things about your work. And obviously I love, love the discography that comes from your world. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) classic. The classics and the the variety of music that you've had your hands in and just what a wonderful career and a wonderful example for 
so many young people wanting to get into music and not just necessarily be on the stage, which is there's a whole league of careers out there for people to explore. Indeed, There are so many branches and maybe we'll get you some other, you know, I have friends in the industry, maybe other departments of the world, maybe, you know, maybe a little label chit chat or something. I think we're going to have to do it. It's way fun. And I think it's way, way educational, especially for young singers. So important. I'm all about it. I think Me you too. are true in that. Like we want, we want artists to be able to live their mission and to yes. create beautiful music and yes. feel like they cannot be taken advantage of, but supported and loved and, and really just uh, snuggled into the world and shared with the world so that they. The that creators they are the most important aspect of what I do. I care so much about their beautiful talents and I, and I do everything to safeguard them. On that, we agree. And I think we need to end exactly on that note. Thanks again, Stephanie, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks. So a huge thank you to Stephanie Gonzalez for coming in and talking to us on the Master Your Voice podcast. What a fun conversation, and I genuinely believe there are a lot of pearls in that conversation for my young singers who are just getting started in the music industry. Now, coming up on future episodes of the Master Your Voice podcast, we have conversations with ENTs and vocal health specialists, so we're going to talk a lot about vocal health. We're also going to talk about how to encourage young people in singing. I've got a great interview coming up for that, as well as some additional singer spotlights and some other really, really, really interesting conversations with music industry people and people who are working in the field. So I hope you're enjoying this Master Your Voice podcast. And if you want to get involved and find a little bit more about us or me, feel free to find us on Facebook. We're at the Master Your Voice Facebook group. Just send me a DM and I'm happy to pull you in there. Or check out my website, www.vossvoice.com. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope you learned something. But always remember, just keep singing. Thank you.